I can remember when I was growing up hearing an oft-repeated statement from my parents, and it was this, Brian, you better behave yourself. Now, my parents usually didn't have to say that to me very often when I was around them because I knew if I misbehaved around them, I would get it. But they often used the phrase when I wouldn't be around them. For example, as a child, when I would go to a friend's house to play, they would say, Brian, you better behave yourself. As I got older, they would say the same thing if I was going to a friend's house to spend the night. Even, even during my teen years, if I was going out of town to play a baseball or a football game, they would say, Brian, you better behave yourself. Or even if I was just going out for the night to do something with my friends, they would make the same comment. Now, they didn't say that as a threat. It was just an important reminder. They knew how I acted and behaved when I was around them, so they just wanted to make sure that I was consistent when they weren't around. Every parent here can relate to that. You want to make sure that your children behave whether you're around or not. That's exactly what was on Paul's mind in our text this morning In Philippians chapter 1. If you're not already there, please turn with me in your Bible to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi called Philippians in our New Testaments. Philippians chapter 1. Paul wasn't sure if he would ever see these friends again, although he felt he would. But he wanted to make sure that his friends realized that whether he ever saw them or not should not change their conduct because they ought to be consistent in their character. Please follow along as I read verses 27 through 30, which will be our text that we will consider this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only, or whatever happens to me, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me." If you have been with us the last several weeks, then you know that verses 12 through 21 of this chapter are very personal in tone as Paul shares about his own personal circumstances and the results of what, has gone, what he has gone through while incarcerated in the city of Rome. He didn't know what the outcome of his trial would be. He didn't know if he would be executed. He didn't know if he would be kept as a prisoner. He didn't know if he would be released to be able to see his dear friends in this life. But there's a sense in which none of that mattered to him as long as Christ was magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. That was the bottom line for Paul. After that very personal section of the letter, Paul turns his attention to exhorting and encouraging his friends about their own spiritual progress. So now, this morning, we enter the exhortation section of, the, of chapter 1 and of the letter. Notice how Paul begins to exhort his dear friends. He says in verse 27 of chapter 1, Only 
Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word only in, in my translation, I realize each English translation has a little bit different rendering, but the word only is emphatic in the original Greek text. So what Paul is saying is this. Regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what happens in my situation, see to it that you continue to stand strong. He didn't want their growth and their behavior to be dependent on his remaining here on the earth. Like a parent, he wanted to know that their behavior was consistent whether he was around or not. He wanted the assurance that whether he was able to see them again in this life or not, they would remain strong. They would continue to grow in their walk with Christ. So he starts with the word only here in verse 27 to emphasize what ought to be their main concern. The New International Version renders this, whatever happens. In other words, regardless of my situation, that's the idea. Paul is calling for the same single-mindedness he's just expressed in the previous verses when he describes his outlook and his perspective on life. You'll remember that in verse 20, he had said this, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's focus. And Paul wanted that same focus for his friends. So he begins verse 27 with the word only. Maybe today we would say it this way. This is the bottom line. This is the bottom line. Let your conduct be worthy. Paul has just described his worthy desire and his worthy conduct. Now he calls for the same things in the lives of his friends. The word conduct here in verse 27 is an interesting term in the original language. It was actually a governmental term that meant to live as a citizen for the good of others. Or to live for the good of all. Or even to live for the good of the state. As citizens of heaven... The Philippians were to lay aside their own personal preferences in life to live for a higher cause, namely the kingdom of Christ. Over in chapter 3, Paul reminded them that they were citizens of heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.13, Paul said, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. As citizens of heaven and citizens of the kingdom of Christ, we are to live our lives for the highest of all causes. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 1, verse 27. William Barclay has written this, and I quote, Paul was writing from the very center of the Roman Empire, from Rome itself. It was a fact that he was a Roman citizen. It was, a, it was the fact that he was a Roman citizen that had brought him there. Philippi was a Roman colony, and Roman colonies were little bits of Rome planted throughout the world where the citizens never forgot that they were Romans. Romans. 
spoke the Latin language, wore the Latin dress, called their magistrates by the Latin names, however far they might be from Rome. So what Paul is saying in here in verse 27, you and I know full well the privileges and the responsibilities of being a Roman citizen. You know full well how even in Philippi, so many miles from Rome, you must still live and act as a Roman does. Well then, remember that you have an even higher duty than that. Wherever you are, you must live as befits a citizen of the kingdom of God, end quote. That says it well. That's exactly what Paul is exhorting here in verse 27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, beloved, we don't behave to get into heaven. We behave because we are already citizens of heaven. So Paul says, and the Holy Spirit says, the bottom line, is to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Nothing else really matters when it comes to eternity. You could almost say it this way. Only one thing matters from the moment you become a Christian till the moment you die, and that is that you conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. In a sense, it doesn't matter if you make a lot of money or dress nice or have a nice house or a nice car or if you get promotions. It doesn't matter what your education is or your profession is or how many honors you get. The main thing that matters most is that you conduct yourself worthy. If we call ourselves by Christ's name, Christians, that's what the the word Christian means, little Christ. If we call ourselves by Christ's name, then we should live worthy of the gospel. That's what Paul wanted for his friends more than anything else. And I find it interesting that he centers in on the conduct. Let your conduct be this way. It's so easy to talk a good talk, but not walk a good walk. Some people have almost perfected that hypocrisy, and it's nauseating. So Paul addresses their conduct. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast. Stand fast was a military term that meant to be at post without moving while under attack. This was basically a charge from Paul A charge for no compromise in doctrine and no compromise with sin. Stand fast. Stand firm. Be consistent. Don't move. Over in chapter 4, he charges them with this again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. This was a common theme with Paul in his writings. One of his great fears in life was that he would hear that some of his Christian friends were backsliding or were drifting or or beginning to wander or move away from the faith. So he often exhorted them to stand fast or stand strong. Back in Ephesians 6, he said this. Go back to the letter just prior to Philippians. Go back to the left to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, Paul, as he winds down this letter to the church at Ephesus, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand 
against the schemings of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You hear that several times here in, this, in these verses, this exhortation to stand, to withstand, to stand firm, stand fast. Isn't it easy to begin slipping in the Christian life? The world, the flesh, and the devil are continually pulling at us and, and tugging at us, and it's so easy to slip without realizing it. That is why we are often in the New Testament called to stand fast, stand strong, stand firm. Now back to our text there in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27 is another one of these exhortations, like what we just saw there in Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul didn't just want his friends to stand fast alone. He wanted them to stand fast in unity. After all, it's much more difficult to stand strong in the Lord when you try to do it all on your own without the support, encouragement, and help of other believers. Now, there are times in life when we have to stand fast alone. We have no Christian friends around us, no Christian brothers and sisters to support us, but those times are much easier when we are standing fast as a team in unity. Paul will come back to this same theme several times in his letter. In chapter 2, in fact, notice the opening verses. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul is saying, listen, you're a team. Stand fast together in unity. In chapter 4, he hits this same idea again. Chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's obvious this meant a great deal to the Apostle Paul. And the reason this meant so much to Paul is because it means so much to Jesus. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's why this unity meant so much to Paul and why he addressed it so often in his letters. Let me show you another example. Go back once again to Ephesians, just prior to Philippians, and look at Ephesians 4, verse 3. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
The word endeavoring or whatever word is in your English translation, this is a very strong word and it means to strive hard and be zealous to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's a present tense participle, which means that the emphasis is on a continual, ongoing process. Continually work at this. Continually make this a priority. Kittle defines this word as a holy zeal demanding full dedication. So let me ask you, do you strive to preserve unity here in this church? Or do you create division by things you say, things you do, by attitudes. Every believer is called by God to keep the unity of the Spirit. And please notice that it does say endeavor to keep or preserve the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't say create it. It says keep it or preserve it. Sometimes you will hear someone or you'll hear people say something along the lines of, Well, you know, we need to have some activities to create some unity in our church. Well, I understand what people mean by that, and it's it's good intentions, well intentions. But actually, you can't create unity. All you can do is destroy it. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians teach us that we already have unity. We have it. We just need to maintain it. The fact that we already have unity is an answer to Jesus' prayer In John chapter 17, back up there for just a moment to see this prayer or this part of the prayer. Go back to John's gospel, chapter 17. John 17 is Jesus' prayer for his followers, for his disciples, his men. It's just a few hours before he is to be crucified, so he prays for his men, his disciples. And then in verse 20 of chapter 17... Jesus broadens the scope of his prayer to include you and me. Notice how he does this. He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, that is, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Beloved, that's us. We have believed through the word of the apostles, the written word. They were the ones to write the gospels, write much of the New Testament. So this is a prayer for us. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that the word, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer was for unity. And the Father has answered this prayer by making us one in Christ. We are one. We are linked together. We are connected to each other. Romans 12.5 says, we are members of one another. We are a body. That's an analogy Paul uses in Corinthians and Romans. We are a body, so we should relate to each other like a body. I'm sure everyone here has seen the sad sight of a spastic body. An individual with cerebral palsy or some other disorder where uh, the person can't control his or her body. It's a very sad sight to see. Heartbreaking. But even more disheartening, more heartbreaking, is when you and I as the body of Christ don't get along with each other. 
Now back to Philippians chapter 1. Now we see why this was so much on Paul's heart as he wrote Philippians chapter 1. He wanted the Philippians to understand that we are one. The unity of the Spirit is ours. All we have to do is work hard to keep it. Maybe you're wondering, well, why is it such a big deal to maintain the unity of the Spirit? The answer is this, because Jesus said, I pray, Father, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me. The entire concept that Jesus is the Son of God is wrapped up in the unity of the church. Is that an amazing thought or what? As we are unified, we manifest Christ to the world. You know, when we think of evangelism, we usually think of methods or events. But beloved, our greatest method is just to have love, oneness, and unity. Oftentimes our methods don't work because sadly we have to overcome such a terrible reputation of the church over the past decades. And I'm talking about just the church in general, not any one particular church, our church or any others. Just the the general reputation of the church, the inability of believers to get along. Now I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to articulate our faith. We should be able to articulate our faith. But if the world could see a clear picture of Jesus Christ manifest through his united body, if they could see that kind of unity, we wouldn't have to say nearly as much. That's why in Ephesians 4, 3, Paul says, earnestly strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have unity. We just need to maintain it. And if we maintain it, that gives us a platform from which to speak the gospel. So that leads Paul to his next point in verse 27 here of Philippians chapter 1. Notice he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, and here's the phrase, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The phrase striving together is from the Greek word soon athleo. We get our English word athletics from the Greek word athleo. But Paul puts the preposition soon on the front of the word because that Greek preposition means with, together. In fact, Paul uses that preposition at least 16 times in this letter to the Philippians to stress the importance of working together. You see, unity has a purpose or a goal. We don't maintain unity for unity's sake. If you do that, you just stagnate. That's similar to what I said a few weeks ago about fellowship. You can't experience fellowship in a vacuum. You can't experience true biblical fellowship if your Christian life has no goal or no purpose or isn't moving forward. It's the same way with the issue of unity. There's a goal or purpose behind unity, and that is to further the work of Christ. The church can't concentrate on furthering the work of Christ if we have to spend all our time putting out fires of disunity. Disunity shifts the focus from where it ought to be. You see this same thing in the world of athletics. 
if you follow sports at all, when there is fighting and arguing and belly aching and disunity on a sports team, uh, among team members, the team doesn't accomplish its goal no matter how gifted, no matter how talented. And this is such a common scenario in the sports world. The, the team with the most talent, the most gifted athletes, doesn't always win because they don't work together as a team. Well, it's the same in the church. When our focus is on solving problems of disunity, we get sidetracked from our main purpose of striving together for the faith of the gospel. So our unity is a means to an end. It has a purpose. The same thing goes for our gathering together each Lord's Day. Our gathering together here each Lord's Day is not an end. This is not the Christian life gathering here. This is a means to an end. If you see our gathering together as an end in itself, you'll stagnate. God has saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is to grow in Christ's likeness so we can accurately represent the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel. So Paul says, I want to know, I want to have the confidence that you will be striving together for the faith of the gospel. By the way, the phrase, the faith, here in verse 27, that phrase refers to the body of revealed truth. Whenever you see the definite article, the, in front of the word faith in the New Testament, it is not talking about faith in the subjective sense of the word, like your faith or my faith in Christ. That's not the idea when you have the faith. It is talking about objective data, truth, doctrine. Jude calls it the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul warns that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. That phrase, the faith, refers to doctrine or truth. So here in verse 27, Paul is saying we should work together for the truth of the gospel. And when we do that, there's a good chance that there will be those who don't like it. So after addressing potential problems from the inside, Paul now turns his attention to potential problems from the outside. He says in verse 28, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. The word translated terrified was used to refer to horses that were surprised by something and were ready to take off. So Paul is basically saying here in this verse, don't be surprised when unbelievers oppose you and when the world opposes the gospel. Expect it. Don't be caught off guard so that you end up running. It just tells you whose side you're on and whose side they're on. Their opposition to your message proves their destiny, and it proves your destiny. They are destined for eternity apart from Christ. You are destined for eternity with Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. But not only does the fact of persecution give evidence to whose side we're on, so does our response to the opposition. If we stand strong when we are opposed and even persecuted, it proves that there's something supernatural about us. It proves our salvation, Paul says here in verse 28. It proves we're different. It proves we're, we are unique. It proves there is something about us that's not natural, but rather supernatural. And that sometimes has a profound effect on unbelievers. Not always, but sometimes. 
Paul had been an example of this right in the city of Philippi. When he and Silas had been beaten and thrown into prison, they sang songs of praise to God. Acts 16. We looked at it weeks ago. And when the earthquake hit the place, God used that unusual joyful response of Paul and Silas to bring the Philippian jailer to the point of repentance and faith in Christ. Paul was an example of what he wrote here in verse 28. So he encourages his friends to imitate his response by telling them that when they are unshaken in response to persecution, it proves whose side they're on. So it ought to be a confirming thing to us when enemies of the gospel oppose us, and it ought to be a challenge to us to respond with calmness and assurance. Verse 29 says, For to to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted here in this verse is a Greek word related to grace. Paul saw suffering is a gift of grace. Boy, that sure doesn't fit in with the prosperity preachers of our day, but suffering is a gift of grace. If we we were suffering for ourselves, it wouldn't be a privilege. But when we suffer for and with the Lord Jesus, it is a high and holy honor. It has been granted to us, says Paul. That word, granted, communicates the idea that when we suffer for the gospel, it is a sign of God's favor. And one of the things that encourages us is the fact that we aren't in this alone. Others have suffered for the cause of Christ, and others are presently suffering for the cause of Christ. It's a reminder we need here in this country, and one which we as leadership try to put before you often. Often, there are believers suffering for the cause of Christ all around the world today. So Paul adds the next verse for encouragement. He says in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, the Philippians were in the same war that Paul was in. He was a prisoner because of his love for Christ, so it shouldn't surprise them if they too experienced some adversity because of their love for Christ. They had seen what had happened to Paul when he had come to town almost 10 years prior to this. Many of them could still remember how he was beaten, thrown into jail, how he was put in stocks. In fact, it may have been some of the same people who were still opposing the Philippians. Some of the same persecutors may have still been in the city and persecuting these believers. We don't know for sure, but the Philippians knew who Paul was talking about, and they could remember what had happened to him in their city. Not only that, they had heard about all that had happened in his life since he was arrested in Jerusalem four to five years before writing this letter. They they knew all of that. So Paul says to them here in verse 30, you know what I've gone through, so don't be surprised if you suffer too. But remember, if you do suffer, it's not a sign that God has forsaken you. It's a sign of his favor. Beloved, suffering has been the lot of the people of God for centuries. It's been very common for Christians. Why should we think that we'll always be exempt? Much of the New Testament, surely you know this, much of the New Testament was written specifically to encourage believers who were suffering, many of whom were suffering because of persecution. 
Let me show you this in the book of 1 Peter as we begin to wind down this morning. Turn over with me to the right near the end of the New Testament to the Apostle Peter's first letter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 19, it says, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, did not threaten, now notice this next phrase, key to the whole thing, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Then skip over to chapter 4, the same letter. Chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Don't think this is unusual or odd. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be, uh, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There's the same thought as, as what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Don't be surprised if people oppose you because you're a Christian. If they don't like you, if they resist you. That's, that's often been the case for the people of God in a fallen, sinful world. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. He says, or verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, a meddler, in other people's matters. In other words, if you're, if you're being persecuted or you're, you're getting mistreatment, make sure it's not because of some problem in your life or flaw in your character. Verse 16, Yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, if that's the reason we're not liked or unpopular or we suffer, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And then down in verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. When we're opposed, when we suffer, this is what we're supposed to do. To commit our souls to Him in doing good. That is, entrust ourselves to God and continue doing the right thing. Continue doing good. Well, there you have it. Paul's exhortation to his friends in Philippi was to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. That involves the right response to trouble from within and the right response to trouble from without. So I ask you this morning, how do you match up? 
If you're like me, then you, you feel overwhelmed at times. When you read the New Testament and you see these exhortations, it's easy to feel like, wow, the, the standard is so high and, and I just don't match up. I fall short. I fail. Well, if that's the way you feel sometimes, or maybe all the time, I believe that's exactly where God wants us to be. Because he wants us to come to the end of ourselves, so we'll depend on the sufficiency of his grace to make us what he wants us to be. So we'll depend not on self, but on his grace to be what we ought to be. Let's ask him to do that as we close this morning. Bow your head with me, please. And in the few minutes that remain here at the end of our service, and as we've taken time to look at God's word and delve into it, study it, it's important that we always respond to it. It's important that we not simply close our Bibles and say, oh, that was a good lesson, that was a good study, and then walk out of here unchanged. It's important that we always ask, Father, in light of what I see here in your word, what do you want me to change? How do you want me to respond? What needs to be addressed in my heart? What needs to be addressed in my attitude? What, what needs to be changed in my life? I encourage you to, to ask those questions to the Lord right now. Not just today, but this moment. Just to ask the Lord, what do you want me to take from this, Father, by way of application for my own life? And I will say this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you, if you don't have a relationship with Him, you've never surrendered your, your life to Him, that's where you need to start. You need to come to the point in your life where you humble yourself as a little child, where you let go of whatever might be holding you back, and you turn to the Lord in simple childlike faith, saying, Lord, I want you to come into my life and forgive me of my sins and grant me your salvation. Take me. Make me the man or the woman you want me to be. That's the starting point. So if you're not a child of God, or if, there are, if there's any doubt in your mind, resolve that issue this very moment. Surrender your life to Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're, you are a child of God, you know that beyond any shadow of a doubt, you belong to Christ, then ask him how he wants you to respond to his word this morning what he wants you to change, what needs to be addressed. Father, that is our prayer, that we would always be a people who are humble before you, a people who tremble at your word, a people who are responsive to it, not, not as James wrote, uh, of those who are merely hearers of the word, not doers deceiving themselves. And I'm sure I can speak for every one of us here in this room that there have been times when we have been like that. We have been content to be hearers of the word and not doers. But we don't want to be like that. So, Father, stir our hearts. Open our eyes. We prayed that earlier in song. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open our eyes to see. We're naturally blinded to our own blind spots, but we want to see. We want to see attitudes that need to be changed. We want to see character that needs to be refined. We want to see decisions that need to be made. Whatever it is, Father, help us to see, enable us to see, and grant us the grace to be willing to surrender that to you, to change, to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. 
And as we close, we do want to pray for anyone here among us, anyone here in our midst who is not one of your children, who does not know your son Jesus Christ by faith. We're always, always aware that in a crowd this size, it's highly likely that there are those who do not know Christ. And so, Father, may your Holy Spirit convict their hearts, stir their hearts, give them clarity of understanding their true spiritual condition before you so that they don't leave here with a false assurance, assuming they're okay if they're really not. So may your Spirit do his work of conviction to draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to a true faith in Jesus Christ so that he or she would begin to walk with him, live for him, and honor him in life. This is our prayer for all of us because certainly your Son, the Lord Jesus, is worthy of that kind of life to be honored in that way. So we pray that we would represent him well this week before us as we pray these things together in his precious and magnificent name. Amen.